Welcome to the most interesting people in higher education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never heard before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the most interesting people in higher education. We've been trying to ramp up our output for the last few months, and I hope to continue doing that in all of 2022 to bring more and more highlights of the great minds leading higher ed. And like the last episode, this one is going to be about healthcare education. We brought on Dr. David Barron, the senior vice president and provost who serves as the chief academic officer at Western University of Health Sciences. Early on, David talks about the joys of being an educator and how we can use technology to make the experience of education for students better moving forward. Is, you know, it's not what we believe is always best, but what are the students? What are they getting? You know, there's the old saying, it ain't what you teach, it's what your students learn. Continuing our conversation on how technology has changed medicine, David and I discussed telemedicine, specifically telepsychiatry, how he has been involved, and what he sees as the benefits and the drawbacks. Some younger people actually prefer telepsychiatry because they feel more comfortable in their own home, in their own environment. They feel like they can relate over a screen. David's enthusiasm for mental health and psychiatry is contagious. When you listen to him, it makes perfect sense that he would be an effective leader in higher education. Near the end of the episode, he explains why he feels so lucky to be practicing medicine. And what's been a real blessing for me is to be able to live in a time where we're really understanding the biopsychosocial and spiritual aspect of all this, that it's, you know, that the brain is a functioning organ, but how our emotions and how our memories affect how we think. We are so thankful to Dr. David Barron for his insight and for taking the time to share it with us. He was a wonderful guest and we hope to have him on again in the future. And thank you to our listeners for continuing to tune in and hear our conversations. And this podcast, which started as a fun project during quarantine in 2020, has begun to grow, and I'm excited to bring more and more episodes in this upcoming year. Now on to the interview. All right, welcome back to the show. I am joined today by Dr. David Barron, the provost and chief academic officer of Western University of Health Sciences in both California and Oregon, two campuses, which we'll get into. And can we call you Dave today, Dr. David Barron? Uh, Please. All right, Dave. Well, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm happy to have you here. Uh, you're our first provost of any sort of medical college or medical university. But uh, my, one of my first guests was uh, Tony Delito, the Dean of School of Health and Rehab Sciences at Pittsburgh, for, so a big DPT and uh, OT program school. So we're connecting some dots here. We're, making, we're getting some more health people in here, which I think is a sign of the times with, uh, with education online. But I'm curious, what's on your mind these days? Uh, you're, you're a provost. You've, you've been at both Keck at USC and at Temple. Like you've been doing this for a long time. Like, what are you, what are you seeing that's interesting and what's on your mind? Well, it's been really fascinating how COVID and the disruption it has created globally, you know, in the economy and health, but really in education. And this, this is particularly important when you're dealing with health sciences. So at, at Western U, we have nine graduate health programs. 
And, and as you and your listeners probably know, when you're getting a, a medical degree or a, or a dental degree or podia, whatever it might be, timing becomes really important because you have postgraduate training. So for our physicians, they have to go into their residencies. It's not like, you know, maybe a, a, a doctoral degree in English or some other field where, yeah, right, so if it's a semester late, no big deal. So what it did, it created uh, uh, some unique challenges for uh, those of us in, in an, an academic health education, making sure we kept our students safe and healthy, which is our primary interest. Every dean and provost, uh, everybody in academia is always concerned about their students. But also we have that unique challenge of making sure as best we're able that they can graduate on time so they can start their careers. This also created issues with students needing to be uh, interviewed. So uh, residency programs in, in a number of our fields are competitive. So it created some real challenges. Now we were very lucky at Western that we've had, um, Western U, we've had uh, a decade of experience in delivering online virtual ed within our university. So, so we had a bit of a head start on that. And what I think is gonna be a very interesting result of this, this COVID craziness uh, that we've been going through is really we were forced to look at different delivery models. I know, as you said, I've been in this field for, for quite a long time now, uh, pushing 40 years. And there's always been a reluctance, particularly in medical education for change. It happens, but it tends to happen pretty slowly. Uh, you know, kind of like the old story of turning the Titanic. You know, it happens, but you, you got to give it plenty of time. And there's probably good reason why that happened. What COVID has done has forced all of us in this aspect of, of healthcare education, and I think uh, undergraduate as well as other graduate studies as well, is to rethink, is what we're doing the best way to do it? Is there another way that we could consider? And I think what we found out by staying in very close contact with our students is, you know, it's not what we believe is always best, but what are the students? What are they getting? You know, there's the old saying, it, it ain't what you teach, it's what your students learn. Mm -hmm. And what we've done, yep. and many of my colleagues have done, is uh, we've maintained very close contact with our students. Just this afternoon, I was on an hour call with our Student Government Association, making sure that as we try to adapt and adopt uh, to, this, to this new reality and maintain the health and safety uh, of, of our students and our faculty and our staff and our entire university is that we're, we're learning what works well, what we might want to keep moving forward, and what things that we just have to get back. One of the things we've learned is, and we all kind of know this anyway, is students love to be with other students. Um, I've got a, a couple of degrees, so I've had a chance to- I was gonna say, you, you have experience with, in this, yeah. And, and you know, I remember sometimes I learn more from sitting down with my classmates uh, you know, than, than I did in the classroom. So we know, and by way of full disclosure, uh, I'm a 40-year psychiatrist, academic psychiatrist. So that's, maybe I have a little bit of a bias, but our students have confirmed they really miss not being around each other. My wife's a high school uh, athletic coach and her team, you know, they just missed each other. So what I think we have to come up with, and I think every educator is struggling with this, president, provost, deans, fill in the blank, is how do we get the delivery out in a way that it's meaningful for the students, they're getting the information that they need, but not lose out on that interpersonal relationship, because that's a really important part of learning. And if you're going to the health professions, you don't only need to have the, the knowledge, 
but you need to have those skills of interacting with people. Those people skills oftentimes make the difference mm. between an effective healthcare provider and one that's very knowledgeable past all the boards, but maybe not quite as effective. That's, that's I mean, especially in this field, right? We, in a former company, we always used to say, no one wants to be the, no one wants their baby delivered by the midwife who delivered digital babies. Like you, you gotta be there. Someone has to, you have to do that post-didactic clinical work somewhere. So how are, how have you all maintained that, that human to human interaction at Western U through all of this, when, when you were able to, I know for some of COVID, there was a lockdown that was really hard, but how have you, how have you created that kind of hybrid uh, modality on the fly? Well, this has been an ongoing challenge and this again is national. So I'll, I, I can speak from Western U, but this mm. is pretty much, yeah. so our deans, all of our deans, I'm very lucky, all of our deans are, are uh, very, uh, very well connected nationally with their professions and they're speaking with other deans. But what we ran into is, as you say, say, and, I, and I'll use medicine as an example, but it's the same with, with nursing and, and other, uh, other of our f- uh, fields, is that um, they, they, we don't own our own hospital, which to me has turned out to be a real blessing. So we partner and collaborate with healthcare provider systems all over the region. In fact, some, some of them are even all over the country. It allows us to stay focused on our core mission of educating our students, but making sure that they're getting more than adequate, you know, as good as we're able to provide them, clinical experiences. What happened when COVID came is a lot of the facilities were closing down. They didn't want students. Right. Uh, you know, there right. were PPE issues. Now, now we've kind of gotten through that, but it's still an ongoing issue. And again, what it's gotten us to start to look at is what's the best way to provide those clinical experiences. You're right. You don't want someone doing surgery who's only done virtual surgeries. Uh, you know, you want someone who has been there. You don't want, you know, someone- I don't want a pilot who was just on Microsoft Flight Simulator either. Like there's, there's... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that's a perfect analogy. So what we've done is we were, again, we were fortunate. We have a very large stable of clinical educators that we've worked with over the years because we had to have that. The other institutions I've been at where we owned our own hospital, we could rely on our own facility. So kind of all our eggs were in one basket, so to speak. At Western U, because we don't own our own hospital, we have, a, we have a small clinic that we use to train on campus, but we literally have many, many hundreds of people we've worked with over the years who are dedicated clinical educators. We've gotten lots of feedback from the students, so the ones that aren't so good, we're able to kind of move beyond those. So again, we were, we, we, by nothing but, but dumb luck, we were able to navigate this because we had such a large cohort and we were able to shift our students around. We weren't dependent on any one facility. And I think what we're going to see now in health education across the board is realizing that there's a real advantage to having a larger cohort where your students have a variety of options of places to go to where they can get their hands-on experience, you know, working with patients, working with providers who aren't you know, standing up on a lectern but are literally seeing patients. And again, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of healthcare education in the, in the, the last year or two, depending on you know, the, the program you're in, is really seeing patients. You know, it's, it's really almost right. that mentorship right. apprentice right. model. But what we've added is those first two years where you get all the didactic information. So that's what we're doing. And we're, we're working very hard as is everyone else on expanding the network and looking at opportunities where we can have a hybrid where maybe someone could get part of their education in a simulation lab, but always have that, that clinical connection. I, it's hard for me to imagine a role in health education where students don't have 
a, a reasonably significant amount of their clinical education being delivered with the patient in the room with an experienced uh, clinical right. educator. I can imagine some some cool stuff you could do with with AR and VR, but the and we're notion working that on we're that. Gonna... yeah, this is well, really me, an interesting that. emerging field is yeah. AR and VR. So so we have experts as the, you know, it's really it's in fact there's a whole journal now looking at at, at high tech in education. But th this is exactly what's happening, and I think the education of five years from now, for two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now will likely be very different. But I'm confident that it's not going to be worse or second. I think it's going to be better. I really, and maybe I'm just the, the you know the, an optimist, but I believe there's enough data to support that we will be able to come up with a, a balance of using all the high advanced technology, but not lose that humanistic human the human uh, interaction which is critical to be to becoming you know a, a an effective healthcare provider regardless of the discipline I, I i couldn't agree more i um i did a uh i did a demo of a company called Mersion. i don't know if you're familiar with them they do like an, uh, they do virtual reality where in the in this in the context of the demo i did at uh at, i think it was at asu gsv you you were speaking to an actor who was playing four characters that you could look at. So in my, in my scenario, I was looking at four children who were sitting at, at desks and I was trying to figure out how to coach them through a problem they were, they had together. Right. And so I could, the actor was on the other side of the screen, moving between characters and talking to me and their voice would change based on the character. But I was able to interact for about 10 minutes with these four children, if you will. And I was as uncomfortable as I expect pre-K or, or kindergarten teachers are when they're dealing with four kids. Like it really put me in the moment where I was dealing with, with four kids. And I was like, okay, now I get it, right? Like now this is what you could do. Now you have to pair it with real life examples and it can't be the only way you learn, but like that would give me enough information and skills to then go on and practice it in a, in even an internship or externship or some sort of a placement, right? Like that's pretty cool. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. So part of my graduate, I, I went and got a graduate degree in education after I finished my medical school and psych residency. And there was a guy named um, uh, Steve Abramson and Howard Barrows. And they developed this concept back in the 70s of what we called this, what they called the standardized patient. Now, I think every medical school in the country probably uses that. And what that concept was, was you would bring in people and not, not necessarily just actors, because sometimes actors overact, but you bring in just regular people and you train them how to simulate what, you know, if they had heart trouble or they had, uh, you know, gastric uh, issues or they had mental health issues. And what this allowed, and we would use this for students very early on in their training, where they could interact with a live patient, but this was a standardized patient. So they would go into role and the patient mm. would act just like they were coming in. And then yep. they would break, give them feedback and they could say, you know, when you ask the question that way, you really made me feel uncomfortable. You made me feel like I was being interrogated or, you know, I really liked it when you shared something about you. So they got feedback, not from their, and the way we, this was developed was that the student would be with the standardized patient. And even back then, and again, this is way before the high tech we have now, we could observe what was going on or videotape it and then go through it. So this concept of the standardized patient has really been around again since the 70s. And it's kind of what mm. you were talking about. And then we've gotten more high tech. What I liked about DSP, and fortunately, Steve Abramson, who was the guy that developed it, was my thesis advisor and just a terrific medical educator. He was at the University of Southern Cal uh, when I was there. How, uh, Howard Barrows was a, a neurologist by training. I think he was at uh, Cincinnati. But they developed this. And 
what we found is the students really liked and had just as you just described so beautifully interacting with a person not not someone who was evaluating them and and that program continues to this day it's become more high tech but it really it gets at this issue of it's a whole lot different when you're sitting in a room with someone who's got a complaint or a problem and you're there and you want to try to understand and help them so it it really is something that has an interesting history it can be low mm -hmm. tech as it gets higher tech uh, you know, and then we you can develop things where you can develop different scenarios. So if they respond this way, it goes down this route. So I think technology will allow us to create something that is even better than what we have now, as long as we never lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, they're human beings. Now, maybe we'll get to the point that humans right. are out of the picture, you know, that we have, uh, you know, they say now that radiologists, you know, that you, you can get a machine can do a far better job. I don't know if we're quite there yet, but I think we will always need that human interaction because at the end of the day, that's very difficult to replace, even with, uh, you know, even with, uh, uh, you know, avatars or whatever we come yeah. up with. Yeah. It'll be fascinating to see how the field goes moving forward. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'll just follow that thread for a second. I was talking to, a, I was talking to somebody who's hiring salespeople in Silicon Valley for, for software jobs. And he was like, you know what, like we need more liberal arts students these days. And I was like, really? I, I didn't expect you to say that. And he was like, yeah, no one can connect to humans. We started hiring all these folks that understood systems, understood operating tactics and like workflows, but no one can go out and sell the stuff. And I was, I was interesting. I was like, maybe is this the resurgence of the liberal arts degree? Is it to, to get people to communicate better around software? Like, and I just, you, you, you know, uh, Fareed Zakaria, one of my favorite CNN commentators, I, I try to watch him religiously on Sunday, actually wrote a book about that. And it, oh, it, it's, a, it's a great read. I mean, no conflict of interest. I've never met the guy. I enjoy his, his style. Uh, you know, he, you know, he does his show uh, on Sunday mornings, but he literally wrote a book about that. And what encouraged me is exactly what you said, that there's something about like, you can get all the technical knowledge, but people skills. And I tell you what we're seeing in meta, and I've been on uh, admissions committees for a couple of different, more than a couple of different medical schools. We've actually found that some of the best students are not always the ones who were, you know, valedictorian in biochemistry, not that they're bad students, but students who come from a liberal arts background who really do have some of those other skills. I think you're seeing in a lot of medical schools, a lot of effort is being put into kind of training those interpersonal skills. I know at yes. Western U, we have a yeah. program called IPE, Interprofessional Education, where all of our students from all nine colleges get together and learn from each other. So they learn how to work with people from nursing, from other disciplines. And it's, it's something that I'm very proud of. I know a lot of schools are doing that, but I think you're right. I think we cannot lose the fact that we, we, we need the uh, IQ as well as the EQ to be That's an effective right. healthcare That's provider. Exactly right. Yeah. And you're, I mean, to talk on, touch on your background for a second, I mean, you're, you're like everything I, I kind of scratch at, you have an in-depth answer to, which is like the perfect kind of scenario for, for this chat. So thank you for that. Your background, you're a psychiatrist. I, I think I saw somewhere you're the son of two psychiatrists. And, uh, am I right? Yeah. yeah. My, my grandfather uh, was a psychiatrist and my dad was okay. a psychiatrist. So, okay. Uh, Got it. I, I'm, I, a, I'm, I, a I'm a third generation. In fact, third generation. Some people okay. don't think this is something right. My, my, my grandfather was actually um, uh, new and was friendly with Sigmund Freud when his daughter came to Philadelphia many years ago. She lived with my grandfather. Oh, when that's she was cool. Born. She did a sabbatical cool. at the University of Pennsylvania many years. So I actually have a signed uh, a picture of Sigmund, even though I, I'm, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but uh, it was a brilliant neuroanatomist. So yeah, it's, it's, there must be a gene somewhere for wanting to be, uh, to, to go into psychiatry or mental health. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's, 
that's probably one of the more interesting autographs you can get. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. What are your thoughts on mental health from a distance, right? You have all these apps now where you can get, like, I'm just kind of switching gears, but same, same yeah. theme. There's, there's a lot of uh, like mental health, remote mental health. I'm, I can't think of the actual technical word for it, but therapy from a distance. Um, yeah, telepsychiatry. Thank you. And I, I knew, I knew if I blundered it a few times, you would come in and save me. What are your thoughts on that? Like, is it's, it's still new, but it, I would imagine for someone in your, in your role, in the background that you have, you've probably thought a lot about this. I'm just curious. Oh, yeah, I'm, but, actually, uh, I'm actually very, very involved with it, even with some, some federal grants that'll be going in within two weeks. So what, of course, seen, of course you are. Let's get, let's keep going. I love it. So what, what we've seen is telepsychiatry is not new. I, I was involved with the state of West Virginia many, many years ago in developing a program. And what it was originally intended for was there will never be enough psychiatrists. There'll never be enough behavioral health specialists. And the ones that we do have, and this is true worldwide, tend to concentrate in large inner cities, New York, Philadelphia, uh, Boston, Los mm. Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego. You don't have to go far out of LA. You don't have to go very far out of Philly to get to an area where there are very few, if any, psychiatrists. And in certain areas like child psychiatry, it's even a worst case scenario. You go globally, so we've, we're presenting a grant we're gonna be doing, uh, hopefully if we get funded, we're gonna be doing in Malaysia, where you might have one or two psychiatrists for many millions of people. So this is a, this is a real huge problem. So global psychiatry isn't new and it's gotten much better. My current views on it are it's gotten much better as technology has gotten better. I think there's a very important role for it. But again, if you look at, and there've been a lot of studies looked at, and the, you know, there are some populations, uh, it tends to be more, more generational related. Some younger people actually prefer telepsychiatry because they feel more comfortable in their own home, in their own environment. They feel like they can relate over a screen. We do see a bit of a generation gap. Like when you get people who are more like my age, they don't feel that same level of connection. So I believe there's absolutely a role for telemental health. I don't want to just restrict it to psychiatry because we have mm. psych nurse practitioners and a lot of good mental health providers who contribute to this field. So I believe there's an absolute critical role, particularly in expanding capacity. You know, you can sit at a computer screen and supervise or evaluate or treat a patient from, you know, quite a big distance. And, and we've actually been involved with some with uh, some international projects through the World Psychiatric Association, which is very much committed to this. Uh, you know, it's, it's an organization that really tries to stay on the cutting edge of this. And we really focus on low and middle income countries, which have actually a much greater problem than we have in the United States. So long-winded answer, but I think there is absolutely a role. It's not exactly the same. Many people don't like it as much. There's a lot of subtle nuance in psychiatry, people's body language, facial expressions, and as cameras have gotten better, that's improved, but you can't really see someone's whole body oftentimes. And if you do, the face is further away. So I think it's a very important tool in the toolbox. Uh, and in some areas, it is the only thing you have. So it's a whole lot better than nothing. But I, again, we get back to our earlier discussion. I, I believe what we have to continue to work towards is maintaining that person-to-person -person interaction. And again, uh, it, the, the field's advancing, it's improving. We've got some of the tech experts who happen to also be psychiatrists or mental health providers. Right. It's a, it's a work in progress, but I, I think it's going in the right direction. I don't believe the idea is to completely eliminate face-to-face -face, uh, interactions. Uh, and it's something because I'm an educator, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm very interested in this. We're looking at how do we take the best out of it and create a hybrid 
that will ultimately benefit the patient. And as you as you think about benefiting patients with all of that in mind, and I want I want to also take some time and talk about talk about you. I'm realizing there's probably a story there around your your path into your role, and I think we we might have jumped over that. But what do you think the next generation of healthcare professionals looks like with all of this stuff we're talking about? We I mean, five years ago we were not talking about AR and VR with in react like in in reality uh, in like a, in the real context of reality, we were, we were kind of like, that could happen. We could do that. And now we're starting to see it really plugged in and dialed in, like both with, with online learning, but also the actual practice. So what does the generation of learners that are becoming professionals look like? Are you, are you seeing a change in their dynamic or, and like maybe a loaded question, but how do they interact with faculty who weren't quite as involved with those technologies during their time? So kind of a, a two-part question there. Yeah. And it's a great question. And I don't know if anybody really has the answer to it. I think it's one of those questions that you have to keep asking and you have to keep observing. Anyone mm. who says they have the answer to that either has a crystal ball that nobody knows uh, or they're lying uh, and you know uh, it, it's just not there. But I think what you ask is really one of the key questions. We certainly see, and I've seen it now 40 years in the field at one phase or another, that different generations, they learn differently. You know, the, you know the, there's a different mentality. And that's, you know, that, that, that in and of itself is a fascinating, you know, why that is. What would really be interesting to me is what's it going to be like for this generation of students, be it, you know, whatever they are on the educational spectrum, how is this couple three-year disruption that COVID has created, how's that going to affect them? You know, my wife tells me, you know, hmm. students, high school students, you know, who, you know, it's, you know, they have really suffered. They've self-report this by not being able to be around their, you know, their, their, their colleagues, their friends, their peers. So your question is one that I think will probably be maybe one of the most important questions moving forward. Not only how do we keep up with the technology and maximize its utility, but integrate it into an effective strategy. At the end of the day, the bottom line, if you're in healthcare, is really all about affecting the quality of life of your patient. But to do that, you also have to take care of the quality of life of yourself and your colleagues. We've seen a huge problem in physician burnout and not just people at the back end of the spectrum, but people who were, you know, even students feeling burned mm -hmm. out. So the yeah. emotional stress that we've seen at so many levels, uh, you, you, you know, you kind of pile that on the stress of being in healthcare education, which is, you know, highly competitive, lots of volumes of material to learn. I think how we teach, how we assess, how we make sure that people can keep up with their skills as technology just runs wild. That's gonna be, I think, the challenge of the educator, not only of today, but really of the future and how we work with, I mean, I generally tell my students, I said, I'm not being politically correct to say, I need you to teach me. I need you to teach me to figure, you know, how do you learn best? I, I, I can't just call them to say, hey, help me get on a Zoom that, you know, I'm having troubles with. Right. But I think we will have this, <laughs> this ability for the generation who grew up with this to be able to assist the educators so that we can bring our experience and expertise to knowledge, but being able and willing to work with students to create something that will allow that next generation of healthcare providers to be the best they're able to be and maybe better than previous generations. I love that. Yeah. And to your, to your point about just, I don't know, listening and, and learning from the, from the, from the other folks you're in, in you're around, like have you saw there's a, I, it was either WAPO or Washington Journal, but it was an article uh, last week that, you know, it said the 37 year old managers are afraid of their 23 year old employees these days, right? Generational divides. And like, I'm not going to go into the whole depth of the, the, the article, 
it's a good read though, but like the ideas around just the changing of work, but I, I couldn't help but think maybe we just have to ask the younger folks what, like what they think, like, cause they've, they have, they're dialed in, right. They've, they've, they grew up on all this stuff. Not absolutely. You know. Absolutely. And what I would hope we could do is people wouldn't say I'm fearful of my 23 year old, but I feel really blessed that I have someone who understands exactly. that we work together. To me, yep. it's about this whole idea of mutual self-respect that it's not the old hierarchy that I grew up with where you revered the senior professor who had been, a, I mean, we can still revere them, but I think what I'm seeing and I'm hoping what the education, the, the future of education will be is this appreciation that we really can learn from each other. And sometimes the best thing we can do is to listen. When I ask my students, what are the biggest stressors? I don't want to say, oh, are you stressed by, bup, bup, bup. no, no. I want to leave it as a psychiatrist, you learn to ask open-ended questions. So what I want to do is say, you know, A, has it been stressful? Because some people said, you know what, there's been less stress. I don't have to deal with traffic now. I don't have to deal, you know, I really, and I, hey, I didn't really consider that. So I think open-ended questions that you really want to hear what they have to say, and then working on solutions together. That yeah. to me is the key. And yeah. I think with technology, it's going to be more important maybe than it ever has in the past. That how do we integrate social media? You know, that's got good, bad issues. But, but how do we use online education? What's the way to communicate with each other? I always think it's, it's really important to ask the patients, what do they like? Because mm. at the end of the day, if they're feeling stressed out by having to go see a doctor because they don't want to go to his or her office because they're afraid of whatever they might be afraid of, maybe they say, you know, a, a, a virtual visit is great for me. I love it. And some patients might say, you know, I just don't feel connected. I don't feel like, you know, I feel like I'm talking to a computer screen. So I think it's all about asking the right questions, listening, and then working together in an integrated team to come up with the best solutions at every aspect. I love that. I, I think it's such a more modern way of just interacting too. It's like the the archaic version of like top down everything. And then like training happens at the low levels by training materials, not interaction and collaboration with this more senior person. I think that that's new style of, of business, you know, what you're kind of saying is like, it sounds like it's also in, uh, in more of the new style of medicine uh, and the way yeah. people are talking about patient, uh, patient doctor relationships. Yeah, I think it is. And who knows what it's going to be. I know one of the things that many companies have dealt with, including in education is, you know, when we had lockdowns and we locked down fairly early, our Oregon campus got hit very early. I mean, some of the first deaths imagine. in the country, our That's students right. were up That's there right. in Oregon and Washington, but you know, the idea when we had to close down just for help, and then bringing people back. And, I, and we've seen this across the board in, in business and industry, you know, who should be back? You know, the old world, you know, kind of post-World War II was well, you know, you had to go into the office from eight to five and, you know, you punched in, you punched out and you got your two weeks vacation. I mean, that, that was kind of the standard. Well, now I think we're looking at, does everyone need to be in? Uh, my IT guys uh, and ladies who work with me, they work almost from home because they have better setups from home and they get a whole lot more work done. So to yeah. me, the bottom line should be, are you able to accomplish your job? And some people might very well be able to do this better from home. I still like, we, we all try to get together, you know, to just see each other, share a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, because I do believe there's real value in that. But I think part of moving forward, and we're seeing this in the workplace, you know, uh, you know, Amazon does the commercials about, you know, someone said, well, you know, I can't work in the morning. I can't work at night. And once you that. Know, my twist, yeah. and they say, oh, you're hired. But I think that's going to be a recruiting yep. tool because we've got a generation of, of uh, workers and educators who were saying, you know, 
is it really, but do I really have to go in and deal with all those, particularly in LA where we deal with, you know, can be some pretty um, stressful traffic issues. So I think this will be part of what is going to be the best model moving forward. And I don't know if we're there yet, but if we allow ourselves to be objective, to not come in with too much bias and just observe and listen and ask the questions, if we're able to do that, I'm confident we're gonna come up with something that is probably far superior to what we've been doing for the last 70 or 80 years. Yeah, couldn't agree more. As you were saying, I was thinking about all the stories leading up to the pandemic that weren't about the pandemic, they're about work. Yep. It was, how many, like once a week, I read something like, will remote work become a thing? Employees like it, managers hate it. And now the article is, will remote work ever end? Or yeah. will we ever have to go back? And it's like, think about how quickly that changed. Like it was like, I don't know if it'll ever happen. I mean, that's just, that's just pure catalyzed change, right? Like that's, that's as fast as it can move. Exactly. And, and it's the speed of, I, I remember when they used to talk about the Polaroid minute. Well, now you're waiting a whole minute for that. That's like forever. I mean, you take a picture, you expect to see it in tenths of a second. So uh, you know, it's, it. it's amazing yep. to me. I still believe that it, it will not be an either or. I still believe we'll have some form of a hybrid. I, I'm not- and Couldn't maybe agree I'm more. Wrong. But I'm not, no, I mean, I'm enjoying interviewing with you with this. It's, um, it's a stimulating conversation. I can guarantee if you and I were sitting in a room, I'd be enjoying it even more. There's just something about the ability. So yeah, I'm glad we can do this. And I'm thrilled to be able to share some, some ideas. Hopefully some of them are right, but who knows? But I know that, you know, as a psychiatrist, yeah, telepsych is great. Telemental health is great. I don't know if, at least for some individuals, that, that we'll need to figure out kind of this, a hybrid and that, and as technology advances, you know, I, I can't, I wish I had a crystal ball. I wish I'd be around. I'm not going to be around 50 years from now, but I, I'd love to see where we go because I can't imagine where we are now when I first got involved with the field again, as a very young kid, because my dad and grandfather were both academic psychiatrists. Love it. Speaking of like, let's, I want to, I want to learn about you some more. The fun thing about interviewing academics or anybody in higher ed is I don't have to say much. I can just ask questions and I feel so much smarter after. (laughs) So how, but how did, how did you get here? Like you, you didn't, I assume as a kid, you weren't thinking I'm going to be the provost of, uh, I think the, what is it? The largest graduate school of health sciences in California. Like that's something, I think I saw something along those lines, but like that couldn't have been the the We've got the most graduate colleges. We've got nine. Graduate now, college. Okay. Told, the reason we're the most diverse is there aren't a whole lot of vet schools and we have a vet school. I think there's like <laughs> 35 vet schools, but you know, but we have medicine, we have medicine and nursing and dentistry and OT and PT and uh, optometry. So yeah, so we're very diverse and, and it, it, it's a large health education. I actually never really thought about being a, a provost. I knew I was always interested in education. I came very close to um, almost going into that because there's just something about that educational process. Mm. It's not teaching as much as it's teaching and learning. So even when I was in, in high school, I, started, I was involved with mentoring and tutoring uh, kids from inner city areas. I mean, I've always just, to me, one of the greatest blessings that we get is the ability to, to learn and to adapt, you know, that this is, you know, this is one of the you know, one of the true blessings of being a human being that we have this, this prefrontal cortex is part of our brain that allows us to learn. So I, I always wanted to be in the academic side of things. I've always been fascinated by uh, the field of psychiatry. You know, wh- why do we think, feel and behave in a particular way? How do we change that? And what's been a real blessing for me is to be able to live in a time where we're really understanding 
the biopsychosocial and spiritual aspect of all this, that it's, you know, that the brain is a functioning organ, but how our emotions and how our memories affect how we think. So to me, it, it was always the most fascinating of fields. You know, cardiology is great and, and, you know, all of that, but to me, there was nothing more exciting than trying to understand what it is that makes us, us. That you can transplant a heart and a kidney and you're still the same person. And God, yeah. God love me. I have, a, I have a, my, my dear beloved sister had a kidney transplant is doing great, was a, is a wonderful educator. But if you transplant a brain, you got a different person. So, so <laughs> being, involved, <laughs> being involved in, in neuroscience and in and psychiatry, being able to live in a time where we can look at the brain as a functional organ, where the only way we could look at the brain when I started training was when somebody died. But now with advanced neuroimaging, I was very lucky at USC, we have one of the world's premier, the, the Enigma group that has developed there, that we can literally look at the way the brain functions. And that to me has been nothing short of, of uh, fantastic. So I, I went into medical school, one of the few people who said, no, I wanna be a psychiatrist. I wanna be a neuroscientist. I was very lucky to, to have won a Fulbright and I got to go up and study the things that are important to me with colleagues from different disciplines. And I just feel like I'm a, a really lucky guy and we're given a lot of opportunities that I try to never take for granted. Appreciate that. You got your start in what, osteopathic? How did, yep. where, where, was the, where was the beginning? Your, your educational history is, is long. <laughs> Like, yeah, so so um, so my, my my dad was a was a was a DO, and my, my grandfather was an MD, and I was um, I was fairly fortunate that I, I had a choice of what direction uh, I wanted to go to. So back then, you didn't have to apply to like a hundred schools the way the kids do now, but uh, I applied to a couple of schools, one each, and I was uh, I was very fortunate to get accepted. But for what I wanted to do, I was very much enthralled by what was then and is still kind of the osteopathic philosophy, which really has to deal with, you, you deal with the patient as a person. You don't really focus on an individual organ. Now, I'm not saying that, that the MD, my MD colleagues don't do that, but this is really part of the fabric of osteopathic medicine. And now we've seen it go from six schools to, I don't know, it's like, I think 35 schools. So it has grown quite a bit, but, but the core philosophy of understanding a patient in the context of their life as a person really kind of struck home uh, for me. I, the, 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 the attitude of the school that I went to, I went to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, uh, one of the older schools was founded back in 1899. The people there, it was very much a um, supportive environment. The, the, we, the stu students, we all studied together. Uh, we always, we, wor we worked together. And again, not that there's a monopoly on that. I think there are USC. I saw the same thing when I was teaching there. But uh, it was, it's something that felt right for me. And I thought it would give me some opportunities to pursue the things I wanted to. So I was able to get in before I, I got in a little early. I, so I didn't graduate from college. I, I got accepted early because I, I was an okay student. And so uh, I was the baby of my class, which gave me some time to pursue some of the other things that I've been interested in. So public health and public mental health literacy have always been an interest to me. So I got involved with the National Health Service Corps, working with physicians in rural areas, which is how I got so interested in rural mental health. Substance abuse and mental health issues are really serious issues in, in the rural community with very limited resources oftentimes. So I, I was uh, very, very fortunate. I've been very involved with sports my whole life. I'm able to compete at a reasonably high level, but was always interested in the mentality of sports. So I got involved very early on in 
uh, developing sports psychiatry as a subspecialty with my colleagues and uh, still get a chance to work very closely with that. It's been really rewarding for me to see how mental health has come out of the shadows in the area of sports. I started working with pro teams back in the 70s with the old Philadelphia Eagles when I was in Philly and worked with a number of the Philly sports teams. And back then, you didn't talk about mental health. It was considered a weakness. You didn't talk about mental health at all. I've been very fortunate to work uh, uh, five Olympic games. So I've had a chance to, um, to do that. And what we've seen over the last number of years with marquee athletes in the professional and the Olympic ranks coming out and saying, you know, hey, I've struggled with mental health issues. Yep. And, you know, it's okay to not be okay. Now, part of that was COVID related, but I, I, the, the first book that I, that I did, I'm, I'm just finishing up uh, the third one on sports psychiatry with many of my colleagues who've contributed. And what we're seeing now is an appreciation of how important behavioral health, mental health, and psychiatry is for marquee athletes. Hmm. And again, we've seen some tragic stories. We saw the Larry, uh, the Larry Nasser story with, with the Olympic gymnastic team. We've seen, you know, even just this past week, NFL players coming out and saying, you know, they really struggle with this. NBA players, you know, we, yeah. there's a long litany. And what that's done is not only made it okay for other athletes to come out, but what it's really done and what I've seen, and I think is such a terrific thing, is teenagers and, and young adults and, and not so young adults will look at this and say, I'm not an athlete, but if they can come out and share their vulnerability, then maybe it's okay for me to do the same. So I think there's a tremendously positive effect of the stigma of mental illness still exists. I think it's improving a lot. I think COVID, one of the positive things will be, COVID will say, hey, you know what? When you're under a lot of stress, it's okay to feel stressed. And here's some things to do. Hmm. So we have yeah. this field called lifestyle psychiatry, which a good colleague of mine, Doug Nordsey, has written a book on that. He's at Stanford. Uh, in fact, I was on a call with him just this morning. But looking at lifestyle issues, stress identification and management, sleep, exercise, relationships, uh, diet, use of you know uh, alcohol and other drugs. I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of the things that you would expect. But now there's very good science to demonstrate. Dealing with stress and and lifestyle issues plays a very important role, not just in mental health, but in our physical health. So one of my areas of research was something when I was at the NIMH, I was deputy clinical director there a long, long time ago, but we were looking at the, part of the things we looked at is the impact of emotional stress on the immune system. It's a field called psychoneuroimmunology. And basically what, what many really fine clinical researchers have demonstrated over the last 30 or 40 years now has been that emotional stress has a direct negative effect on our immune system. So, so this tie between health and mental health is a biological one. And that I think has helped a little bit with some of the stigma. So we got a ways to go with dealing with mental health stigma and mental health treatment, which was far worse than the criminal justice system. If you go back, you know, hundred years, uh, people who had mental illness, who suffered from mental illness were treated uh, worse than animals. It's really, it's quite disgusting, but that's where we were. We've made significant improvements, I think, globally, certainly within this country. And I really, truly, honestly believe that in the world of sport and in entertainment and in other fields, we can help lower this stigma, get the needed resources to create the support that we need, which will make for not only a healthier individual, but a healthier society. Couldn't agree more. And to connect, I gotta, I gotta say, I, to connecting two dots, you, you mentioned the Olympic Games, and earlier we talked about uh, remote mental health therapy 
And then I saw somewhere you worked with Michael Phelps. Were you involved at all in getting him to think to, to come out and work with the, I think he's with Talkspace or something? Like, is there something there? No, 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 no. I mean, th this goes back to after the 2008 games. And, and, and okay. we wrote an article and it's well known. This is public knowledge that, that, that Michael uh, had issues with ADHD. Uh, his mom talks about it. his mom right. was a high school, middle school teacher, and she yep. actually got him into swimming as a way of maybe dealing with some of this. It just turned out, you know, he's probably the world's greatest swimmer, at least in my, if you look by <laughs> outcomes. So um, I think so, a lot of people and, would agree with you. I think that's and, not, that's and, not too know, much of a hot take. Yeah, the number know. of gold medals. I mean, that we've had a lot of great athletes, but my, you know, Michael's, I believe is probably at the top, but, but what I appreciate with, with Michael, and that's what I wrote a paper about is his courage to come out and talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, he was someone who was, you know, the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time. And yet he came out and, you know, shared his story, you know, and continues to share his story. What I've seen, and I think part of what Michael did back then and other athletes, I don't want to just give, I mean, I, you know, to me, he was one of the, one of the biggest names that came out, you know, very early on, but I, I really believe that his courage and others like him, and there were many others, I don't want to exclude them really led to the sports industry, professional, Olympic, uh, NCAA, even high school. We've I've done work with the National High School Coaches Association that, that, that now these organizations realize and appreciate the value of mental health. And I applaud all of the sports organizations. You know, you can just go down the list. They all have mental health advisory boards. This isn't about just being politically correct. This is about understanding the needs of our current and future athletes and our former athletes. So uh, I, I think what we've seen is when, when marquee names kind of come out and discuss what's going on, it has a societal impact. And, and I applaud the sports industry for picking up on this. And we've got a ways to go, but um, you know, to an organization, every sports league I've worked with uh, and many of my colleagues in sports psychiatry, you know, we're involved. They have mental health advisory boards. They're putting a lot of effort into addressing stress and mental health issues. And hopefully that can then become a model for other parts of society as well. I love it. I, uh, I, I appreciate all that. I mean, I, I'm realizing we're at the hour and I want to keep going. So I have to do that, like that thing that hosts do where they, where they, <laughs> Uh, where they keep keep track of time, especially when you have somebody with so much that they could uh, that they could share. And I, I, I'm truly thankful for everything you're sharing too. I can only thank you for giving me a forum to share some of my thoughts. I hope there are some interest and value. The only thing I would really hope for is if they could inspire some of your listeners because uh, they'll, they'll do a whole lot more than I've been able to do. But the only thing as an educator is you hope your students are always better than you ever were. So I'm hoping uh, that, there, that maybe some of the things we talked about, some of your listeners will uh, latch on to and make uh, significant contributions because the best work is the work in front of us, not the work behind us. Oh gosh, I love that. I'm gonna, I gotta write that one down, share it with my folks too. Uh, well, I, I, always, I always try to give one last, uh, one last you know, thought to the guests. And I, I love to hear like, you know, what is one thing you want the listeners to, to remember, right? Like what, um, as students, um, as people going on and, and doing their own discovery and a lot of the things we talked about, like, what do you, what do you want them to leave with? Well, it, it was a really rich discussion. We were kind of all over the map, but I enjoyed that. <laughs> I think the thing that I would like to leave the listener with is it is true. We are in some stressful, disruptive times, and I'm not talking about disruption in the business world, which is a good thing. I think the key to being successful in the future will be realizing and appreciating the value of learning and listening from each other in different disciplines, in different 
phases of our careers and that the end goal is to make something better than what we went through. And I, and I think however the AI and everything else plays out, if we keep that one thing in mind, let's work together, let's learn from each other, embrace technology, but how does it fit into the big picture? I think if we do that, I'm confident that things will only get better moving forward. And then we can all take a collective, at a boy, at a girl, that we contributed in some small way to making things better for society and person kind in general. Appreciate that. I, I love the, the positive energy too. The last few episodes, like the word love and community and, and each other has been used a lot. And I, 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 I really like the trend that's going on. I think we're all emerging. Well, uh, I hope we this. don't lose that. It became stressful. Let me tell you, and I can say, yeah. you know, it became really <laughs> stressful. I think we need to get back to that. At the end of the day, we all do better work when we feel like we're cared for, we're listened to. We, we love each other in a way that, you know, and we're, we, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to not be okay as, you know, as people have said. But I think the more we're able to work together and respect each other, it'll be not only more productive, but a heck of a lot more fun. And that's the name of the game. That's the name of the game. Quality Dave, of life. Dave, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. This, this has been great. Thank you so we'll, much. Uh, I appreciate we'll have, the opportunity. Hopefully the next one we'll do, we'll do a follow-up. We'll do it in person and we can, and we can have that human connection. As my grandmother would have said, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> there we go. Thank you so have much, Dave. Day. I'll see you. All right. Take bye-bye. care. Bye-bye now. Thanks, everybody. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.